Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market glamour to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing saying attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine over the long run. In other words, emotion and expectations drive short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations determine returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, the Omicron variant, the Fed moves to end bond buying and Black Friday shopping. What do they mean for the markets? We will also discuss FPA's contrarian value fund, the Crescent Fund, why it works and what it tells us about the markets. That's with our guest, Brian Selmo, partner and portfolio manager at First Pacific Advisors. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, let's start with a look at the markets. The Omicron, however you say that, people are saying in all different ways, hit markets pretty hard and now indications from the Fed that bond buying may end sooner rather than later. It's been kind of choppy out there. What are we watching for? Yeah, those two items that you just mentioned have uh, definitely put some pressure on the market. We are recording this on the last day of November, and it does appear as of this recording, we are going to have a loss for the month, the only second losing month for the overall market all year. Depending on the investor, what it means, I mean, obviously, long-term investors, this is something, you know, it's just, you know, a lot of people are just selling first and making, you know, getting the facts later. I think for some short-term uh, traders out there thinking about year-end numbers, it might be a factor. But for long-term investor, hopefully this is just a blip. Right. Well, let's talk about the shopping season, which of course is in full swing. Black Friday sales were strong, but they're still not at pre-pandemic levels. But overall, spending still seems to be really strong. Do you think people have just changed their shopping habits? Yeah. I think that has to be it, that people have changed their shopping habits. Heck, I have. I mean, there's things that I love going into stores, but there are things I now buy online. So um, I think that's, that's definitely the answer. It's not really that, that provocative. It's just a consensus view. You know what we need? We need a contrain here to shake things up. <laughs> well, good thing we have one. Let's bring in our guest. Brian Selmo is a partner at First Pacific Advisors in Los Angeles. Brian, welcome to The Weighing Machine. Hi, thanks for having me. So before we get started, I'm going to throw it over to Rusty, who has our all-important traditional opening question. Rusty, take it away. All right, Brian. So, you know, our standard opening question here is a really fun one, and that is the walk-up song. What is the music that listeners can imagine they're hearing right now as you take the stage? So I think it's important to stay or get in the holiday spirit. We put up our tree over the weekend. And so I'll be walking up to uh, Bing Crosby's White Christmas because it's 75 and sunny in Los Angeles. But I'm hoping and planning to spend Christmas somewhere uh, where it's snowy and cold. Oh, that's on my short list of favorite Christmas songs for yeah. sure. Nice. I do think it's important to note here that Brian is telling us all of this while we're looking at him sideways because his <laughs> camera is sideways. So I think that's perfect for your walk-up song too. Yeah. We already mentioned how symbolic it is that FPA just does things differently. So Exactly. There you go. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Brian, you are a partner, portfolio manager, and director of research at FPA. Can you tell us more about how you got there and what you do in your position? Yeah, sure. I joined FPA about 
13 years ago. I've been in California for five or so years managing a special situations fund before that. And then, uh, you know, prior to that, I was working at a third Avenue in New York. And so in my position now, I co-manage the contrarian strategy with my partners, Mark Landecker and Steve Romick. It's a few different funds in the group. And then I also help manage the research team and the sort of research process. So everyone on the team is an analyst first, including the PMs. And then, you know, as PMs, we we sort of curate the uh, the names out of the research process for, uh, for the different portfolios that we manage. And so it's a combination of, I think, sort of as a player in terms of doing work on individual names and then uh, managing a portfolio as well. Well, tell us more about the members of your research team. Sure. So it's an 11-person team. I mentioned the three PMs and then the other analysts. Um, you know, Most of them are what I would think of as focused generalists. So they would have areas of focus where they would you know, be responsible for following an industry or type of business, maybe somewhere between two or four per analyst. And then there's a couple people who are less focused on industries and they uh, have availability or capacity to chase after one-off type ideas, things that we'd call commercial opportunities. And one of your team members is listed as an investigative journalist. How does their role differ I bet differ you like that. <laughs> I did like that. Is that your background? That is my background. Yeah. Journalism, public radio specifically. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I think, I think first a quick background, you know, if you're looking to fundamentally understand a business or a situation in economics, I think it's similar to telling yourself a story and certainly probably a lot of people's uh, familiarities with companies come from, uh, you know, compelling stories that they read in the business press or whatever else, you know, and then for us, and this is going over the sort of 30-year history of the fund. We've had a you know circa four or five-year average holding period, and there's some names we hold you know quite a bit longer. And so a lot of the qualitative uh, factors, usually around management and boards, are you know are very important over that type of holding period. And so our investigative journalist uh, focuses on those issues, so less so on the sort of financial issues of the company or the uh, or the business, and more so on the on the people and the motivations and the reputations and things like that. Nice. And when you're looking for analysts on your team, uh, what qualities are you looking for in an analyst? I'll mention this on two levels. I think everybody in this industry is very fortunate to work with, you know, highly capable, you know, people with very high aptitude. Um, And then I think integrity uh, is a, you know, kind of table stakes as well as kind of hard work. Otherwise, I don't think someone would last very long. You know, they probably wouldn't last six months. But so then when you get beyond those kind of table stakes, I think the things that, you know, we really value, you know, curiosity and interest in, uh, you know, business or the topic is very interest is very important. And then, you know, ideally, someone would also have a strong commercial interest or sort of a commercial sense uh, and be thinking about, you know, what they're learning about or what they're researching from the perspective of opportunity or, or how to make money from it. Hey, Brian, are all your analysts, or do they all live near the home office or do some work remotely? Two years ago, they all lived near the home office. That's, that's not quite true. We've always had um, one or two people who have been in different locations, whether in Northern California, we had someone in New York for a while. But during the pandemic, one person relocated to uh, Texas where he had grown up and sort of spent uh, graduate school. 
And then we've also had some people move to, I'd say, a little bit further from the home office within the greater LA area. And I think that that's going to stay that way for us, you know, where it's going to be people all over. As a director of research, managing all that talent, how do you do it now that some of them are remote? Do you have to do things differently? You know, you have to do things differently in the sense that you don't have serendipitous interactions in the office. So I think you have to be a little bit more purposeful in your communication. And I think that for us, you know, which is a smaller team, 11 people, quite a lot of history on the team for most of the people, you know, so it's been a pretty stable team. I think it's a bit easier than it would be if you were kind of constantly onboarding new people or if you had sort of regular 10 or 20 or something percent turnover in the team. And so I think for us, you know, we have the same cadence of scheduled meetings and then people will work on names, but it's all people who work together in the past and work together on similar projects. And so I think that that's been fairly seamless. I think surprisingly seamless, uh, frankly. Cool. But I could see how it could be more difficult if, you know, if you were sort of a higher turnover type of situation. Yeah, I agree. As um, having been a director of research myself, I think one, managing a team remotely. I mean, you're right. People are bright. They're ambitious. You just have to support them. And then what you have to do is, is foster the conversations and make sure you're fostering the debate. That's all doable, but it is probably the most difficult for the less experienced analysts who miss those hallway chats. I think that's right. Yeah. Well, let's talk strategy because you, because uh, the FBA Crescent Fund is one of the more fascinating funds in the industry, and it's the largest and most well-known fund at FPA, and again for good reason. Why is Crescent different than other asset allocation funds, and why has it been so successful? I think it's it's interesting because it's hard for me to define the fund uh, in comparison to something else, and so over. Over time, we've been compared to a lot of different things. We've been compared to 60-40 funds. We've been compared to equity funds. We've been compared to liquid alts. We've been compared to asset allocation funds. And I think that will probably continue that kind of whatever our you know, positioning or returns look like, the, the world will then you know, try to find a box. But you know, we don't start from the uh, position of trying to uh, fit in a box. I think our overarching idea or, or goal is to treat the fund as if it was 100% of a wealthy family's assets and to manage it you know, accordingly. Or you could think about it as the you know, entirety of the retirement account of a, a doctor or a lawyer or something, you know, and a doctor who's not going to use 80 years old and not going to open up the practice. Again, that's you know, the particular circumstances for you know, Mark and my family's life also. So you know, that's the idea when we think about the fund. And so what that means is that we're really focused on, you know, not uh, blowing up or losing uh, capital on a permanent basis or losing purchasing power or economic relevance over a you know reasonably long-term period. And so over the history of the fund, you know, we've been successful in doing that in any rolling five-year period, uh, you know, again, going back to the early 90s. And so I think that's that's one, it starts with kind of this mandate that is probably a little bit different than a you know, industry-focused solution to fit into a box or to have a, uh, a product that one can market. And then secondly, you know, we have to do a good job of uh, picking securities and, and opportunistically participating in the credit market as well. And so over time, the equity portfolio has, you know, meaningfully outperformed like, you know, the MSCI, Aqui, or Benchmark. I think lastly, part of what's helped us to do that is this broad flexibility 
um, where we don't have a mandate that we have to own anything. So we own, you know, U.S. international, large and small cap, and then we also uh, invest in distressed debt in the United States. And so we're able to uh, avoid a lot of pain by uh, by not having uh, sort of a gun to our head to fit in any kind of style box. And so I think sometimes we say that as important uh, as what we own is to producing returns over time. I think you know it's almost equally important to avoiding you know disasters or really bad performance over time is is what you don't own. And so what you don't own can often you know, have a very large impact on your results as well. And so I think it's a combination of those things that has kept the fund in kind of good stead over over a long period of time. Well, one of the things I've noticed about the Crescent Fund, of course, I, I you often will write about this or say it, and people in the industry will say it, is that over the long haul, you basically have equity-like returns with much lower risk in terms of volatility. And the other thing that's kind of neat about the fund, because it's so quirky and different, it also has a more powerful diversification benefits to a portfolio that is composed of different strategies. So uh, it's one of the reasons why I think so many uh, people building multi or fund to fund type portfolios like the Crescent Fund so much. I have uh, another question, and you kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but I've read that Crescent can hold three different kinds of equities. Can you describe what each of them are and how much weight is typically allocated to each? Yeah, this is just, you know, our way of creating kind of a intellectual construct around the type of uh, investments we have. And I don't think that most investments fit perfectly in one box or another, but it's kind of an idea to help people think about uh, what we're doing. And so one would be high quality franchise compounder type businesses. And so these are businesses that, you know, you wish you inherited upon your birth, right? So they're things that you think are going to be bigger and more important in five or 10 years, things that have favorable economics, most likely throw off appreciable cash that, you know, business can redeploy or, or pay out to shareholders. And those are situations that, you know, we want to follow on an ongoing basis. And occasionally, for some reason or another, you get an opportunity to buy them at a price that you think makes sense. Um, you know, the other most uh, prevalent category of investments we, we have is, uh, is what we would call commercial opportunities or three to ones. And these are things that are sort of just too cheap for what they are. So it's still very important that they're economically relevant, but they're probably not assets that you would hope to own indefinitely. They're things that look more like a trade. And if we go back earlier to our holding period, that still probably means a two to four year expected holding period, but it's something that we're not hoping to own a decade from now. And then the last uh, category or type of equities that we would own are more special situations. So these would be reorganizations or pair trades or hedged positions or something like that. And that's kind of the different flavor of the equities that we have. You know, ideally, we would be kind of fully invested in high quality franchise businesses with great balance sheets. But the, you know, the reality is that we kind of take what's available um, at any point in time. And so it's a little bit more responding to what the market presents or gives us rather than starting with a dictate of, you know, we want to be X percent in this type or Y percent in that type. It, it's really more a response to what's out there rather than a top-down decision on our part. I also want to ask about fixed income. Uh, when and how does the Crescent Fund invest in fixed income? I think my joke's going to be when we think there's a uh, real rate of return available. Uh, so we're not, we're not doing much in fixed income right now. But But really, what we do in fixed income is high yield and distress really focused on the United States. And so 
we're looking for equity-like returns in fixed income. So we're typically going to be, you know, investing in fixed income once credit spreads are wide. I think it's it's been a, you know, feature or a characteristic of markets over the last decade or so that spreads have been pretty narrow with the exception of maybe two or three little short blips. And, uh, you know, starting yields in terms of the 10-year treasury has been very low as, as well. So fixed income has been something that we've done a lot less of in the last five years than the fund would have done in the 15 years prior to that. So Brian, you say the fund is flexible and you've kind of, again, mentioned some of this stuff already in terms of the stuff that you can own. And what is, what is the role of things such as illiquid assets, shorting, paired trades? That's some pretty cool stuff. That's not conventional for most funds. Yeah, I think I'll start with illiquids. And so I think first it's important to sort of define it in the context of, you know, the fund and public markets. And so, you know, Crescent is a 40 act fund with daily liquidity. And so maintaining a liquid profile of a highly liquid profile of the fund is, you know, paramount. And so we invest in some things that we would call less liquid. I don't think of them as hard illiquids. And so I think of a Hard illiquid as being a private company or a situation where you know you don't control the timing of uh, of realizing cash or sale of the asset, um, and that you know could be a minority position in a private equity or could even be a wholly owned position in a private business. And so we don't tend to do that, or we haven't done that in Crescent Fund, and we're not going to. But we do invest in things that are less liquid, but where we uh, either there is somewhat of a market, maybe not a national security market, but there's something of an informal market or, you know, where we control the timing uh, and the liquidity of the position. And so those have been in the past, they've been pools of liquidating mortgages, they've been direct loans. So think about this as, you know, bank debt that maybe doesn't trade a lot. They've been uh, portfolios of ships where we would own the, uh, the holding company and we would control the liquidity of the underlying um, assets. Or they could be, uh, you know, late stage uh, growth companies where the, you know, the business is fairly well established and the capital stack is, you know, somewhat diversified, but maybe not to the point where it's publicly traded, but there's probably still some type of shadow market available. And so that's what we do on the illiquid side. And we're looking there for investments that aren't available in the public market. So there's kind of has to be a compelling reason by virtue of both return downside protection, but then also just kind of a lack of alternative availability for us to do that. And then I would also say that we've been very um, purposeful and conscious about managing the total, you know, less liquid bucket to be, you know, five or less percent of the portfolio at any time. In terms of shorting and pair trades, you know, that's, uh, that's a little bit, you know, different in terms of, you know, you're doing that on a public exchange. Um, and that's largely to either hedge an existing position or to create uh, an alternative kind of uh, payoff or uh, exposure that doesn't exist by just going out right long. You know, the classic example would be owning a holding company that has a number of publicly traded subsidiaries on the long side and, you know, shorting one of those subsidiaries directly that you didn't want exposure to, or owning a multi-industry uh, business and maybe hedging some of its uh, exposure to one of those industries by shorting a group of peers in that industry to, again, isolate the exposure to a different uh, part of the uh, company. Again, I think all that flexibility helps translate into, again, a, a fund that just acts differently than other funds or strategies. 
All right. So if you look at a, your typical equity fund, you would, and if they're say they're 100% invested in stocks, you would consider they are 100% net long. The Crescent Fund, meanwhile, over time has had a net, an average net long exposure closer to 60%. But right now, at least the data that I'm looking at suggests that that net long position is closer to 75%. Does this mean that the overall stock market's really attractive or you're just finding some unique opportunities? Or does this mean the bond market, as you already mentioned, is not as attractive? Why is the fund more net long now than it usually is? Yeah, I think there's a number of reasons for it. And I think first, I'll, I'll, I'll agree with the point that the fund has been has had a greater net long exposure over the last, say, 12 to 18 months you know, than it has uh, on average in its history. And I think the we wrote a fair amount about this in the second quarter of 2000. And, and what we did there is we compared the you know, characteristics of our equity portfolio in particular, and think about this as sort of valuation, returns on capital, dividend yields, and growth profile, you know, to the market, but then also to, you know, what, you know, cash or a 10-year treasury would be. And I think we thought it was a, a clearly superior position to have more exposure to that equity portfolio, um, you know, than to those alternatives. And so that was you know, one thought that led to that and, and has led to kind of a continuation of that over the last year or so. Um, so I think one, we find that there are a fair amount of, uh, you know, reasonably priced, I don't think dirt cheap, but reasonably priced higher quality businesses to own. And I think that when we own on average higher quality businesses, we want to be, again, all things equal, more fully invested than if you owned a portfolio of maybe lower quality, more cyclical businesses you know, at a different uh, point. Um, so I think that's one, it's the composition of the underlying portfolio. Uh, and then I think two, an important consideration is your your alternative set or your opportunity set. And, you know, I think we continue to think that um, fixed income, particularly fixed income with any duration is a, is a very, very um, unattractive place to be. So I think it's a combination of those things. One last little wrinkle I'd put on that is we are a little bit now, you know, we're talking in December, we're, we've been a little bit less invested in that recently. And, and part of that is because some of the exposure you see is a basket of SPACs where we've purchased um, back units, which is a combination of the warrant and the underlying trust. And we bought those below trust value. So they sort of, you know, look like, you know, free options on successful completion of a deal where our downside is managed by the ability to put the uh, the shares back at trust value. And so that creates some exposure, but I think, you know, from our perspective, doesn't create a lot of economic exposure or risk. Wow. Fascinating. All right. Well, another change in, in the Crescent Fund's positioning, and, and it's actually related to a conversation I was having just before this podcast interview, actually, and that is on international investing. Uh, the Crescent Fund's international position has doubled over the last four years from approximately 20% of the fund to over 40% now. Why is that? Is that due to more attractive opportunities abroad? Is it because the U.S. is expensive? Is that something saying about the dollar, all the above? Yeah, you know, everything we do is bottoms up. And, you know, my partner, Mark, is, uh, you know, has a strong background in international investing. And so when when he joined the team in 2009, that really expanded the capabilities and capacity there. So I think we've had an important international presence and exposure sort of since that time. Uh, you know, in terms of why it's gone up in the last four or five years, 
there's not really any one reason. We we look at companies around the world sort of, you know, fairly indifferent in terms of where they're domiciled. There might be some industries that we might favor, um, you know, in the U.S. or region, or like I mentioned on the on the debt side, we're probably pretty North America focused. But otherwise, there's no particular reason. It's just the happenstance of of opportunities or the type of companies that that we're finding attractive at the time. I do also want to ask you about the current stock market environment because so, some investors are sort of feeling like it's a lot like the late 90s. Do you think that's true? And and if so, what do you think that means for investors moving forward? You know, I I don't think it's particularly true. I think that the world has changed a lot um, in the last 20, 22 years. And so, you know, first of all, back then, the bond market and credit spreads were very, very, very different from what they are now, both the starting yield as well as the spread and the availability of capital. So I think you're dealing with a very different capital market today. And I think what that means is that if you go back to the late 90s, early 2000s, you had you know, a huge swath of the world, which would be small and mid cap kind of uh, traditional businesses, many very high quality. I'm probably thinking of you know, restaurants um, and uh, food franchise kind of businesses back then. You're trading at single digit multiples, maybe four to six times enterprise value to EBITDA. And, and those type of multiples just, you know, for that kind of stability of an underlying business, they can't exist in a capital market where debt is essentially free and, uh, and private equity is as developed and sophisticated as it is today, because all those companies would be bought uh, well before they got to valuations like that. So I just think it's a very different environment from that perspective. Um, the other thing I would say is that a number of the leading largest companies today um, are digitally based and they have you know fairly different economic profiles than a number of the leading companies from the late 90s. So I think that's a that's a pretty meaningful difference as well. So I, I'm not sure that that's that's a view that I that I have. I think I think the world is constantly kind of changing and evolving, and you have to respond to it as as it exists, not try to look at it just through the rearview mirror. Well, speaking of things that are different than the late '90s, of course, is you and I didn't have to deal with questions regarding digital assets like we do now. Does FPA have a view on digital assets? What What are you saying about crypto? Um, we don't have a firm view on digital assets, and I will just speak for myself and say that I don't think I'm knowledgeable enough to, to say anything of, of value to your uh, listeners. I, you know, I think we are spending time thinking about it. I think you'd be nuts not to be thinking about um, blockchain technology and, and crypto generally, but it's, it's, not a, uh, it's not a topic I think I have anything to add on. Oh, come on. So many different value managers have come out and said really provocative statements. I would have figured FBA would have said something. I'm giving you another chance. <laughs> oops. I'd say oops. Woulda, coulda, shoulda. Okay. Woulda, coulda, shoulda, I think is, is the smartest thing I can say. All right. Well, let's turn to some of our favorite questions that we like to ask on the podcast. Brian, from your experience, what do you think makes a good investment manager? You know, I, I think this is another where you've got a high threshold for the givens, right? You've got probably high aptitude for everyone, most people participating in the industry. People have, you know, curiosity. I think you have to be passionate. Um, I think intellectual honesty is very, very important. Understanding what's knowable and what's not knowable, and the difference between the two. And then I probably think the two 
most important considerations from my perspective would be having a a healthy appreciation for convexity and how uh, you know it plays in a given investment. And then secondly, and probably most importantly, is temperament. Right. And how about a good investor? You know, I, th- I think it would be a lot of the same. And I, th- I think I should caveat this by saying, you know, my answer is really, you know, relating to public markets, investors mm-hmm. or investments. I think the skill set and the attributes you would want to aspire to if you were in private equity or in venture capital might be very different from those that I mentioned. Another favorite question is, uh, in our profession, we all have the obligation to perform at a high level. What do you do, either physical or mental or both, to ensure that you're performing well? And I say that because, again, you obviously are fit because you've stood sideways for this entire (laughs) podcast. Yeah, exactly. I'm hanging from the ceiling. So what do I do? Um, I'm a big fan of meditation and I'm a a big fan of uh, working out and exercising and sweating hard. So those are two things that uh, make me very happy on a uh, very base level. All right. It's holiday season. So another favorite question for us to ask this time of year is, do you have any, well, I, we have two questions here. One is, do you have any reading or podcast suggestions? And the second thing is for that holiday gift giving list, do you have any books you could recommend? On the podcasts, I would say there's a lot of great podcasts. I you know, I think Colossus is really good. I think Acquired is good. And, and if you loop it back to crypto. There's a podcast called Modern Finance by Kevin Rose, which which focuses there. I think those, in addition to your own podcast, are all, you know, probably pretty enjoyable. And then um, in terms of a book, I recently read a book called uh, You're Not Listening by Kate Murphy, which, uh, which I liked, I think is worthwhile. You probably only need five out of the 20 chapters to get the, uh, the meat of it. But um, you know, it's it's a really good message about paying attention to the other people, you know, who are in your life or in your uh, conversation and, and trying to focus on what you're hearing rather than, you know, what you're about to say. All right. Well, Brian, it's been great to have you on the show today. How can listeners learn more about you and your work at FPA? Sure. We have a website, www.fpafunds.com. And then the Crescent Fund is public and is a ticker FPACX. All right. Well, Brian, thanks for being on. I do have one more question. So over the course of my career, I've met with a lot of managers. So I've literally met with thousands of managers and been in hundreds of offices, but I just realized I've never been in the FPA offices. And mm-hmm. you've been fortunate to work at a couple of great legendary value shops. And I have been to like Third Avenue. How would you compare and contrast that office, which was the quintessential value manager office? So now I've got to ask, which Third Avenue office were you at? Were you at 48th and Third or 42nd and Third? Was it was it more north of Grand Central or was oh, it south? Heck, I don't know. It was like in a it was like in a basement and it smelled like fresh carpet. <laughs> what year were you there? Do you know what year you were there? Uh, it, it really was about 20 years ago, around 2000. Okay, so you you were at the original office at seven six seven Third. So that's where I joined, and then we moved to the other one. Um, so FBA's offices and even Third Avenue's offices today are much nicer than what Marty had at 767. My first desk chair only had three of four working uh, wheels on the bottom of it. And so if you rocked in the wrong direction, you'd fall over. Most of the stuff was threadbare on the chairs there. And uh, yeah, everything was repurposed and shared. 
that was Third Avenue. I think Marty had been there since the seventies or something too. He'd been there a long time. FPA's offices uh, had been pretty similar to that. Actually, I mean, somewhat nicer. Um, but Marty had a good view. Marty's actual personal office had a shower in it back then too. So, so what are FPA's offices like now? FPA's offices are in a high rise on the west side of LA. So I think of them as traditional finance, nice offices. They're not particularly fancy, but they're not like grubby and valuey either. I think that was a look 20 years ago, like the really good value shops. Yeah. Know, even if they had killed it and had done very well professionally, their offices were very, as you'd expect, they were, they looked like cheapskates. I mean, Marty used to say he lived like a, uh, you know, a professor without tenure and he sort of, that's what he looked like. I mean, his, they had an amazing apartment over Central Park on the west side, Central Park West, which, you know, it's it, it very fancy neighbors and stuff. But his place, like the furniture hadn't been replaced probably once since they moved in, you know, 30 years earlier. Wow. So it was very. Yeah, it was it was it was deep in Marty for sure. It's great. Good stuff. Well, hey, that is going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final words. Stay balanced and stay the course. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine. And thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Strategist at Orion Advisor Solutions, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com. All opinions expressed by Rusty Vanneman and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and don't reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion, its affiliate subsidiaries, and its employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information that participants consider reliable.